Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 86. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, I talk to my good friend, street performer, novelist, juggler, Dana Smith. Before we get to Dana, though, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. I hope everyone enjoyed last month's virtual online juggling festival and the live Drop Everything podcast with Scotty Meltzer. Information about the IJA can be found at juggle.org. All right, settle back. Drop everything. Get ready for Dana Smith. Welcome to Drop Everything podcast number 86. My special guest, Mr. Dana Smith. Welcome, Dana. Thanks, Dan. Great to be with you. Now, Dana, am I correct in assuming that you are a Californian? Were you raised and born in California? Yes, I, I'm actually doing an end zone dance right now in the Hill Hill in downtown Oakland, where I'm celebrating the vice presidential pick for the Democratic Party, Camilla Harris, uh, also a native Oaklander. Oh, because when you said end zone dance, I thought this is where you're going to go to die. Is that? <laughs> is, is it not no, your I go to at home. Is that? Did I get that wrong? I go to Fisherman's Wharf to die, Dan. Oh, I don't Fisherman's die Wharf. on <laughs> at Pier Thirty Nine. I've died there myself a few times. So you're a big fan of uh, the Vice President uh, choice by Joe Biden, uh, Kamala Harris. Is that yeah, that's a good I, choice for you? Yeah, yeah. I think the uh, we've seen enough of the other uh, act, and uh, we need uh, we need some change, man. Yeah. So as an act, you feel he's uh, he's overstayed his time on stage. And it's time to bring on someone new. Yeah, maybe somebody qualified. Yeah, if we had a hook, now would be the time to bring out the hook (laughs) instead of the next replacement act. And what city were you born in California? Oakland, is that right? I was born in Oakland, 1951. Be 69 years old this September. It's funny, the number of jugglers who are like 10 years older than me. It seems like 1951, same year that Cremo was born. Mm-hmm. About the same age, same age as like Avner and Dick Franco, Michael Chirik. See, so a lot of people that early 50s was a pretty good time to be born as a juggler. What was your childhood like? What was your exposure to media and TV and stuff like that? And when was the first time you saw a juggler? I think I saw the first juggler on the Ed Sullivan show. As a matter of fact, I know I did. But I don't think it really, nothing penetrated my imagination at that point. Uh, the thing that really set me off was the some sort of guerrilla theater offshoot of the San Francisco meme troupe uh, maybe showed up at a college campus during a protest. And they did these political sketches in between the sketches. A couple of guys could pass clubs. And so they'd pass clubs a little bit. I remember being transfixed by this whole experience of this sort of political social theater in the middle of a college campus. It was amazing. So it wasn't until college, really, that your entertainment interests got perked. As a kid, you didn't do any juggling. What age did you actually learn to juggle? I guess uh, 20 years old before I picked up any juggling balls. Interesting. I was a Bay Area brat. I was all over the place. Uh, I, I went to high school in Novato. I went to Bellarmine College Prep down in San Jose. And then I uh, ended up at San Leandro High School where I met a couple of uh, guys who were actors. And uh, they were just about to put on a version of Rhinoceros, uh, Eugenio Ionesco's uh, play. And I right. fell into uh, sort of hanging out with them, doing makeup, watching rehearsals. And and I showed no facility for acting or speaking in public at that point. As far as circus or entertainment, nothing in your family. What, what did your parents do? <laughs> My father was a milkman. Okay. That's worked a, for that's... Berkeley Farms. 
delivered milk. That's a trade that has disappeared. Yeah, milkman. Yes. That's, yeah. And my mom was a housewife. During the summer, she would go to Hayward and work in the uh, canneries that were there off of uh, B Street, I guess it was. And she would go in for like six weeks and can tomatoes. And that'd be a little mad money for the family while we ran around in our 46 Chevy, uh, living it up in San Leandro and Fremont. It sounds like an <laughs> idyllic 50s childhood. Was everything in black and white or... Was it all, is it how I imagined it or was it kind of innocent and fun? What was it growing up in the 50s like? Well, nobody really knew what they had with me because my parents really did come from a very straight world and a very conventional life. And they happened to give birth to an artist, a creative minded <laughs> kid. And uh, there were a lot of problems with me. I had a lot of problems. I had trouble fitting in. I was easily bored by the schoolwork. Um, I was always drifting off into my dreamland and imagining things. And of course, there was no uh, skill set in the family to figure out what the heck this was going on. It wasn't until uh, a high school counselor figured out that uh, he had an artist on his hands that started to help me figure out how to cope with who I was. Did your parents support your artistic endeavors or was this sort of like so out, outside their world they just didn't even know what to do with it? Is that the experience? Well, my experience was two different personalities. My mom was like, you know, that desk is always going to be there and you can jockey a desk right down to the graveyard if that's the path you end up having to take. But man, the idea of dreaming about being something you want to be and doing something you want to do and breaking those chains and those bonds of the middle class, I'm all for you. My father, the opposite, very, very pessimistic about the possibilities I might uh, have as a uh, entertainer. And that sounds like the story of many jugglers, though, this idea that you discover something where you realize, oh, I don't have to go down this path. There's this other path, but this other path is populated by, I don't want to say weirdos, but to the people in the straight world, it's scary because the lack of uh, consistency, the lack of sort of uh, support can be worrisome to them. Did your dad, what do you think about the milkman career? Did he really feel that it was fair for him to assume you're going to follow in his footsteps? Well, no, I think, you know, he just was trying to help me. Yeah. And uh, he, he didn't mean any harm, but he was a very emotionally limited person. Not that he meant to be so you know narrow he just was it wasn't until many years later that i had an apartment in san francisco in uh, cow hollow and up uh, off of union street and uh, near pacific heights I had a first floor apartment with a garden in the back and i was making good money working in fisherman's wharf i threw them the keys to my apartment for him and his girlfriend i stayed with my girlfriend and he's like kind of grudgingly said well <laughs> i guess you know as long as this works out i'm happy for you son Come and see me when this all falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> so I assume at that time your, your parents had gotten divorced that he had to this yeah. girlfriend. And, oh, yeah. yeah. So this, oh, yeah. But as an adult man, you were able to reconnect with him and he saw that your choices worked out for you. Yeah. I'm, not that it was all smooth sailing. Um, it was not. But ultimately, a very a bright and talented woman friend of mine urged me to make everything right with my mother and father and that whatever faults they had and whatever problems I had uh, had with them, it wasn't something I needed to carry uh, out throughout my life. And I approached my family. We had our discussions about things that were bothering me and what not bothering me, what bothered them. We straightened that all out. Now we're all good. And they've passed since then. And, and But I think I hold them in a good spot now. Good. That sounds like a wise friend to give you that advice. That seemed very, yeah, uh, yeah. very good for your life. Now, let's go back to this uh, idea about the Bay Area, 
because I've had a yeah. few guests on. I've had uh, Fred Anderson and Mitch Barrett, Frankie Olivier, Scott Meltzer. And once again, there's a reconnecting theme, which is early street performing days. And one mm-hmm. of the earliest spots was San Francisco. So what are your first memories of going down to Fisherman's Wharf? Who was down there? And what were the early days of San Francisco street performing like for you? Well, if I just want to back up for a second. Something sure. you might not know. I was dancing. I was a ballet dancer, oh, training okay. very seriously, three, four hours a day. I had another couple of hours a day that I was putting into the gym, working out as a gymnast. The other part of my training was in Shakespeare and literary interests. I uh, was uh, writing uh, all of that was kind of uh, on the boil. I was on the stove and I was like uh, this super energized 21 year old who mm-hmm. got a, a gig with the uh, Royal Liechtenstein Quarter Ring Sidewalk Circus and uh, took off on a uh, 37 state, 110 city, 32 week tour as a, basically a sidekick. The main personality, Nick Weber, ran the show and, and myself and a guy named Steve Avison, who went on to become a, a rather formidable entertainer as a member of the Shakespeare Brothers in Boston in the 70s. We were uh, traveled and it was there in 1974 that my inspiration to stop dancing and to start doing circus arts and variety theater took hold. And that all happened again out on the in the United States. And um, I had been in the city. I saw Ray Jason in 72. I saw uh, Robert Shields in 72. And uh, I, I found their experience riveting, but neither experience was in Fisherman's Wharf. And so your early start wasn't at the pier at Fisherman's Wharf. So you started with this Royal Lichtenstein Circus. Is that the name of it? <laughs> the Royal Lichtenstein Quarter Ring Sidewalk Circus. Lichtenstein. Yeah. We were the world's smallest circus. Right. We were the world's smallest circus from the world's smallest country performed by the world's smallest minds. And you guys went traveling a bus or across the United States, that kind of experience? Uh, we had a, a small travel van. Okay. And we traveled with a bear, a fox, a monkey, a dog, <laughs> a pheasant, and a miniature horse. And what kind of venues did you just actually show up on the sidewalks or... Was it a sort of a planned route? Yeah, we did some bona fide street theater sidewalk shows. We performed in front of a lot of the zoos around the country, weather allowing. We did a lot of college dates. We did a lot of grammar schools. We did a lot of not shopping centers like Pier 39 or Faneuil Hall, but hardcore suburban shopping centers in Dallas or in St. Louis. And they were odd experiences, but they were good training to understand how to puzzle out how to do a show for people who weren't expecting you to do a show. And were you juggling then or just doing acrobatics? I did acrobatics. We did a fraction of that act was juggling. It was more magic and the the wild animals. It was, um, let's see, tightrope fire eating storytelling. We actually did storytelling. We had a little, it was in the seventies. And so every show had a political edge. We had Millhouse, the high diving flea named after Richard Millhouse Nixon. And that was a, a very popular sketch. <laughs> now I've seen pictures of you in your early performing days and you performed yeah. kind of in a white face makeup. Was this from that period of time? And, and uh... yeah, but that was, that was my first uh, stab at creating my first show. You see, my earliest thing, I wasn't in San Francisco till 1980. I was developing from 74 to 80 out on the road, mm-hmm. which maybe not a great place to develop. I, I came into San Francisco in 1980 with like maybe two hours of material. I could do all kinds of different things. Almost none of it was juggling. At that point, I had a performing dog named Sunshine. I had a cat that I, I used to balance on a pole and tell uh, cat jokes. 
And I had goldfish that I did uh, goldfish balancing in a vase on my forehead and told <laughs> goldfish jokes. What else did I do? I had the chicken on the head thing. A lot of stuff on the head with animals. Okay. You put, I don't know what that was. So a lot of animals in your act. So do you, were you always interested <laughs> in performing with animals? Because very few other jugglers have ever incorporated uh, performing with animals. And of course you had a dog uh, for, yeah. when I saw you for the first time. But that, that wasn't the first dog. Was this dog uh, Lacey, I believe, was the dog's name. Yeah, yeah. That was his second go-around. Second go-around. So uh, Sunshine was your first dog. And what kind of tricks yeah. could Sunshine do? The main trick was running and leaping over a pile of kids. Uh, usually it was seven. Hmm. And uh, then I added, how much is that doggy in the window? And then I added some basic uh, shtick from vaudeville. I get her to bark. So for how much is that doggy in the window? Would the dog sing with you while you played? Is that the... Well, you, you do this song and there's a place in the song for the two barks. And so you train your dog to do the barks right oh. there. On, and and the timing was good. Sunshine was better at it than Lacey. Sunshine figured out that, you know, those first two barks, that she could wait 30 seconds before I would get those two barks while I just cringed and, and just <laughs> waited. The blow off after the, the uh, barks was, was well worth the, the gag. That was not something I taught her. She taught that, or, you know, or sort of taught me. And it, it sort of. Where do the barks go in? So, how much is that doggy in the window? Is that then bark, bark? <laughs> oh, yep. <laughs> do they yep. not keep doing it or just those, just those two times? Just those two times, and you go back <laughs> through the song and then bang, bang. And then, you know, you have a bridge and then you go back to the verse gotcha. and then away you go. Interesting. Yeah. And so you also had a chicken. And so the yes. chicken would stand on your head while you yes. juggled. Is that the idea? There's a lot to the chicken. All right, let's hear about the chicken, please. <laughs> okay, well, I came up with the idea to, to try putting a chicken on my head and juggling, right? So I, I bought a chicken. <laughs> As many of us do, of course. All right, all right. Well, there was a good reason for it. First, I at least could, at that point, juggle fire, right? So mm -hmm. I could juggle three fire batons. I didn't have great technique. I didn't have much of anything, and I needed to come up with something that I thought would be out of this world. Sure. And so I thought, well, is it enough to juggle fire? No. Is it enough to stand <laughs> on a balancing board and juggle fire? No. What you want is something exciting, something visionary, something you've never seen before. In short, you want to see me juggle fire with a chicken on my head. Am I right? I see that's definitely, uh, definitely original. And the audience would say yes. And I would pull out a chicken and put the chicken on my head and juggle the fire. And I assume you had some chicken jokes with the chicken on the head. <laughs> I know, what a horrible way for a chicken to have to make a living. Well, there are a lot of chickens working in Safeway, and they're not having half as much fun. <laughs> now, when you travel with a chicken, did you have the same chicken for a while? I mean, how long does a chicken live for? Uh, I had uh, chickens. Uh, I had a bantam that lived forever. She, I retired her, and I got another chicken because I wanted a bigger chicken. I thought a bigger chicken would be bigger laughs. Okay, sure. Bigger payoff, maybe make more money. <laughs> Makes sense, right? <laughs> The bigger the chicken, the bigger the tips, okay. The bigger the chicken, the bigger the payday, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. Showbiz, and, uh, I've heard that there's, before. There's logic to chicken work. Sure. Uh, so, but uh, the, the bantam continued to live and came back and reprised her role after the other uh, chicken, Fatima, uh, met a untimely and early uh, fatality, I guess. Is, is she died early. Well, how many years did you do that act? How many years did you juggle with a chicken on your head? Well, I was juggling uh, in 79 and I think 94 when I met you in um, at Universal Studios. They had seen the act and asked if I could do it in Universal Studios. And so I hadn't been doing it in a while. So I brought it back. Now, did you have the chicken? Then I don't remember the chicken. 
when I met you. <laughs> That's not memorable. Let's see. I think we met at Universal Studios, and so I had a dressing room, and I had the chicken back in yeah. the dressing room where in, in a cage where she could stay cool and fed and watered. Yeah, I don't think I saw any shows. I came to visit, and I believe it was... Uh... God, I'm thinking, was Charlie Brown there or Waldo or... It was Waldo. Who were some of the characters? Waldo, yeah. Waldo was there. And then maybe Magical Mystical Michael? And, and uh, Glenn Singer was around. Glenn Singer. And okay. uh, no, let's see, who else, who else was in my cast? Uh, the Pendragons were there, but they wouldn't talk to us. They were, you know, this uh, high-end uh, magic Magic actor. duo, yeah. yeah. Yes. Let's see, uh, who else was on that crew? Um, I think Scott and... and um, I don't know who he was. Scott had a double. He was doing a, a double with somebody. I think he actually got Katrina to do the gig with him, which is a long time ago. But I think he needed a woman. And, and uh, Scott Meltzer Katrina, you're talking about. Yes. And I think Scotty oh. uh, was able to get Katrina uh, had some space in her schedule and could do it. Because this is pretty early. But that was like 94, you're saying. Yeah. So one of the things that I learned, a lot of guys really came out of the box pretty polished and pretty much self-realized. I was, you know, working with puppets and I was doing mentalism and I was trying magic and I was, uh, I was all over the place and the animals, I had a springboard, I was doing springboard tricks and I was going all over the place. But I was also, personality wise, I was working against type. I'm this tall dude, I'm, I'm handsome and I'm creating material that's pretty zany. If you really looked at me, you would, I think the audience wanted to rest in a little bit more polished, more composed place with what they saw. So that took a lot of years for me to figure out how to do that. And that really bloomed fully when I got the second dog, uh, Lacey. By the time that happened, the couple of things I did, I made all of them, uh, juggling became musical. I've just put music tracks on and I didn't speak. I did a little intro uh, verbally. I did a lot of the front of the show with uh, musical juggling. And then the, the close of the show was my mouth and the dog working jokes and pretty rapid fire. But it was a, more of a uh, leading man type of guy, not really the off the wall nut job that was the maybe kind of described the early chicken on the head routine dude. And so how did your show evolve? Was it just feedback from the audience? Did you feel that being a different type? that being zany was something you had seen but just didn't fit for you? How did the show evolve, and uh, at what point did you start taking off the makeup? Well, the makeup came off uh, in 1980. Mm. I went out to Jefferson Street in San Francisco's Fisherman's Wharf. I'd been on the road for six years and pretty much beat up and worn out and kind of had decided that I'd take the best 20 minutes out of the two hours of material I had, and I would put it on Jefferson Street and crank it out. So. Between 1980 and 1981, I did go out and do a few college dates in the spring each year, but more or less, I did about 2,500 12-minute shows on Jefferson Street over the course of 24 months. And what kind of space is that? I'm not sure where Jefferson Street is. And how many people could you assemble in your audience? I would say maybe uh, I could circle 25 to 50 to maybe 100 people mm. around. Rarely 100 people. By the time it was 100 people, it, was, it had to be shut down. It was too too big. Right. But there was where I learned to economize on my words. I was walking over to the cannery in 1980, and I was seeing uh, glimpses of the last of uh, Mike Davis before he left. 
the last of A. Whitney Brown before he took off for uh, on the road with his comedy uh, stand-up comedy act. Uh, Hokum W. Jeebs, Professor Gizmo, the the Flying Mismos. That was Fred Anderson and and his friend Kit. They were great. They were wonderful. And and of course Bob Hartman and then Ray Jason was there too. And all of those very polished, very tight, thirty minute sets at the cannery were basically the template for what passed as a successful street act in San Francisco. So I was way too verbal, way too scattered, way too unfocused. And the two years working on the sidewalk pounded uh, discipline into my sprawling imagination and gave me something that I could make a 30-minute act out of, right? It sounds like it came up kind of hard, too, because you had this experience traveling the country in this sort of a smaller circus we can call it yeah and then these yep. two years on the street just cranking out shows so as far as like street years or street mileage within the first eight years of your career boy you put on some miles yeah and i still do i'm still wandering around the western united states uh because i love the the the, the, the our our beautiful western landscape it matters i think to us and i also think that it's not inconsequential that Las Vegas became a magnet for variety shows and certainly supplanted anything happening in any of the other nightclub circuits around uh, the United States. Certainly New York was not supporting the number of quality acts that uh, suddenly Las Vegas was. And Pier 39, or not Pier 39, but, but San Francisco's street scene was, in a sense, the center of that not the the seven minute specialty act in Vegas, mm-hmm. but it was became the center of the thirty to forty five minute variety show put on by a soloist, right? Well, like I say, that some acts like the seven minute, the Dick Franco's or Albert Lucas's, developed in the review shows, and then the right. acts that went on to become cruise ship acts or college acts, a lot of them developed this at least the start of their thirty minutes or these longer form shows, uh, doing street, and certainly one of the right. key places was Pier Thirty Nine. Or, or yeah. that area, because you also had, what, what stage did you have down there? You had the Cannery. The Cannery. Uh, uh, I worked Square. at the Cannery, Ghirardelli Square. I also worked at a place called the Anchorage, which was a bit of a wind tunnel. It's across the street from the uh, Cannery. My first dog, Sunshine, and I developed our 30-minute set in there, and 30 to 45s. You know, it was a yeah. slow-build spot, so you had to figure out how to get a crowd there. It wasn't as efficient. The Cannery and Ghirardelli were both, and Pier 39, were by far more efficient, easier to do, and paid better. Paid better in tips, because nobody was getting paid, right? Right. No, it was all tips. All tips. You're not working with a uh, stage manager. You're not having to please a producer. All you're trying to do is at least be civil enough and clean enough to not have a shopping mall uh, manager kick you off the property. And if you could do a good, acceptable show and had consideration for the children and the families that were there to visit the city and enjoy themselves, you could just do that much. You could basically be in control of your own fate. And so that's sort of a appeal to us, living in a great city, getting to perform on your own terms on the days you want to work and take the days off that you don't mean. So it, it was a great deal of freedom. It was divine. We all realized how fragile it was and how easy and it would be for a, the sh- one shopping mall to say, well, we're tired of street performing and shut it down. 
which which they did uh, ultimately. A lot of changes came to pass. I think some of the acts that came out of San Francisco were some of the best street that I've ever seen. But the best venues, I think, have turned out to be, and I say this uh, with some circumspection, but I think the Renaissance Festival scene has produced a more stable environment for long-term variety show people to work on the same stages year in and year out in a reliable place where they can make a living and, and count on it being there the next year. Well, that's where we started. And like you said, it's certainly something like, you talk about the word stable. I mean, there's acts that we worked with, me and Barry, 30 years ago, who are still working that circuit and doing well. It's not a circuit right. that really leads anywhere else really normally. Some of the biggest acts, like the biggest act was probably Puke and Snot. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but a lot of acts really do well because they're really appropriate for that particular milieu, that particular Renaissance theme. And like, like Puke and Snot are sword fighters or someone right. like Johnny Fox, who's a sword swallower. Some right. acts really work well, like jugglers, you know, in the Renaissance fair market. But not that many of them who started there. Of course, Penn and Teller had their Renaissance fair experience. But I think a lot more people start on the street went on to, as far as cruise ships and colleges, where a lot of people at the Renaissance Fair stayed there. Because like you said, it's very consistent. Jeff Cobb, who I, uh, the sword swallower, uh -huh. uh, worked at the Arizona Renaissance Festival. I think he, he developed a really fine show. He's got very deep chops. He's a very carefully constructed act. And uh, he could come in and out of the Renaissance Festival scene easily. Uh, Dan Looker, I've worked in Toronto with Dan and just a regular scene. And Dan, it's incredibly strong talent. Ultimately, I don't know. It depends. I think it's good enough. In eight or ten weeks at, at a festival in Arizona, um, you know, you can come away with, uh, you don't have to worry about working for a few weeks. I guess I'm thinking about more of the acts that are very specific to the fair, like an act like the Singing Executioners, you know, or, or the Beggars. Or, I mean, there are a lot of acts that are very specific for the fairs. I mean, yeah. for Barry and me, it was a good like three or four years right at the beginning doing those six or seven shows a day, mm -hmm. you know, audience feedback. So I often suggest for people who are starting out, uh, obviously today the, the fairs are not going on this summer, but for, right. for beginners trying to get someplace to, for their first gigs, Renaissance fairs are a good starting place. Now, did you do a lot of fairs? I don't, I never thought of you as a fair act. No, I Terry Foy, who was uh, sort of talent director in Arizona Renaissance Festival. When I moved out of San Francisco after my daughter was born in 92, I worked at the fair for two years, but I never felt comfortable doing it. And I didn't feel like I was going to be able to develop a show that was going to really, you know, be my meal ticket. So I ended up working with this uh, <laughs> sort of a C, you know, the, the small town uh, stand-up comedy club circuit. So I'm suddenly doing dates in uh, Yuma <laughs> and I'm doing dates in Elko, Nevada and Boise, Idaho and the tri-city areas of Washington. So I didn't ever get to work in Las Vegas except at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. But I did work in Laughlin at the Flamingo and I worked in Elko at the Red, Law, or Red Lion. I got an offer to do a multi-year contract at the Red Lion in, in Elko, Nevada, but I just couldn't do it. I was doing my hand balancing work in the, in, and doing just a 20-minute opener for a stand-up. And they'd been looking for something that would set up the stand-up headliner better than mm – -hmm. and I was killing it that way. I just couldn't imagine staying in Elko indefinitely. <laughs> <laughs> now, what kind of hand, you know, as far as a hand balancer, uh, I remember yeah. you doing a, a handstand on a roll of bola. Did you do yes, any hand balancing stunts as well? 
Yes, I did uh, the, uh, walk down a stack of blocks, uh, throwing the blocks out of the way one at a time. That, that was one of my closers for a while. It was a great stunt, took a tremendous amount of work. It was an hour a day, every day of the week, to keep that act in my uh, show's lineup. And I couldn't miss a workout, otherwise it just wasn't there. So you stack up the blocks, so they're, they're stacked up on top of each other. They're stacked up. I hop up on top of them. It, right. it, the mounting is a thing. Right. And then you push up into a handstand. Yes. And then I would start tossing the blocks out of the way one at a time, walking down until I was finished. You know, there was a famous Bulgarian yeah. who made that, that act famous, and he did a whole stack up and then a, a fake fall and then they restack, and then he finally does it, and he does it 40 feet in the air. <laughs> I'm doing uh, a street show with it, and I'm, sure. I'm all of about four feet off the ground when I'm doing it, so... It's a different deal. But the hour day was to maintain the physical fitness you needed and the balance you needed? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. was doing that until I was uh, 50. I think it was oh. 52 years old before I said, okay, I think I'm, I'm about done with this. Because it, it lent itself in the from 80 to 92 in Fisherman's Wharf. I had four stages. I knew exactly how to set up, exactly how to do it, exactly the way I wanted to, that to look. And it was easy. It was automatic. But when I started doing a lot of uh, after 92 till about 2002, I'm on a different stage, different situation, lighting's problematic, just figuring out all the variables and making it comfortable to do. It was a, a hassle. It wasn't uh, easy it, it, at all. It was a difficult trick. Imagine if it wasn't even or the stage was kind of weird that made it more difficult or more dangerous. Uh, slick stages, off kilter stages. Sometimes the lighting on a stage would really throw the eye, you know, because you're you're achieving balance by looking with your eye at a spot, right? And and then yeah. you've got weird shadows uh, sometimes. <laughs> so it's all kinds of different problems with it. Certainly can't do it on a cruise ship. You you couldn't. Uh, you needed more stability. One of the things that I had a really great artist friend up in Marin County. I was doing a campfire show at a campground in uh, Olima for a summer crowd one night. And we were talking about performing. And she said, well, you know, you're earthy, Dana. You got this like, you know, you're kind of got this organic vibe about you. It's not slick. It's not tuxedo clad. It's kind of this experience with you and, and this fire juggling and this little dog that you have. And it's it, it's an enchanting other world you bring people into it's you're like this traveling small time entertainer and people are fascinated by how it is you've survived to be there in front of them now let's talk about some of the street festivals you've done because i know i think i also worked with you in uh halifax nova scotia yes what are your experiences doing the street festivals and which are some of your favorites i did windsor a couple of times and i i really like the audience there windsor's across from detroit nice uh, set of uh, city blocks where we could perform and and great audiences and generous i did halifax a few times i did halifax in 88 when it was 17 days long and uh, it was the year waldo woodhead won the people's choice award there i guess it was called but they, they took the the award for their their work and deservedly so they were just 1988 waldo woodhead and whitlow were spectacular very east coast very eclectic they could do tight they could do you know a real tight 10 minutes but they're more exploring the seams of comedy and the, the ex excitement that their show created was just amazing and they had a live musician so it was waldo and woodhead uh, were jugglers and clowns waldo of course was a very good juggler 
And Woody yeah. was more of the clown, Jerry Lewis type. And then Whitlow, I never saw them, but he was a drummer, right? Whitlow? Whitlow was a drummer, but uh, he wore glasses and he had a kind of an oafish. He looked like an insurance salesman from the 1950s and looked a little <laughs> sweaty and a little nervous. The three of them uh, had a, a very enchanting otherworldly experience to be around them. And uh, so so different, you know, you the, the tall, dapper Waldo and then the uh, clownish and very short uh, Woody and then and then this sort of uh, this drummer. It was it was <laughs> it was. It was the best. And of course, one street performer who comes up a lot, one character, is the Butterfly Man. Yeah. Was, did you have a chance to work with him? Of course, in, at the pier. Did you ever work with him at any street festivals? Oh, yeah. Robert and I were in Key West at Will Soto's, uh, put on a thing called Busker Fest. And I think it was December 86, January 87, something like that. January 87, I guess it was. That's where I met Dick Finkel. And that's where I met some producers uh, from Halifax. And we all, that's Robert and I, Butterfly Man. We mm. ended up going to Edmonton in 87 for where really the first major, I mean, they had two minor efforts, but this was the first major street performing cast uh, assembled. Uh, Ray Jason, me, Moshe, Magical Mystical Michael, Waldo Woodhead. Uh, Murph, uh, Michael Troutman. I'm going to leave some people out, and I, I'm sorry. It's a long time ago now, but we proved that we could pull huge crowds into downtown Edmonton. And the same thing was proven that summer in August in Halifax. And so I didn't go to 87 Halifax. I went in 88. But those were very fueled by a lot of curiosity. And people were showing up by in large numbers to see the street shows. It's an amazing experience. Very electric. And those are still going on. I mean, I think Halifax has been shortened, though. Last I heard, it was only like four days or maybe six days. But 17 days, that's that's a long run of, of performing. And now I think the, the question is kind of weird. I mean, show business is shut down, right? Currently. Everybody's basically. Yeah, currently. Yeah, it is uncertain as to what it's going to take for us to get back. And I, I'm mostly concerned about, one, that these institutions don't collapse because they take insurance and they take money and they have board of directors and there's a staff that gets paid. And if we're up and running by next summer, I think we'll be all right. But if shows are unable to go next summer, that means these arts organizations are going to be like two years without any revenue, no way to go up. So to say the least, the world's pandemic is a threat to a lot of institutions. And so it remains to be seen what's going to come of all this. Well, it's an interesting time in juggling in itself, because certainly it's, it's closed now as far as nobody's doing shows. But also nobody's developing. Nobody's developing a show. No new people are coming up, getting a chance to do a show. So not only does it affect this current time, it affects the time for jugglers moving forwards. And like you're saying, if some of these institutions, we've already seen the collapse of Cirque du Soleil. So if some of these institutions that then support juggling in the secondary capacity by putting on shows or putting on festivals, you know, if they don't make it through this time, the impact of what's going on now could ri ripple through the rest of entertainment history, as far as we know it, you know, especially variety. I think anybody that has done a few hundred or a few thousand shows, I mean, from 1999 to 2009, I took that little Jack Russell Terrier and we did 500 shows a year. I'm pretty close to 5,000 shows in just one decade with that dog. 
Right. When I f- first got that dog to do the first show with me, I walked away from that ovation and that response, and I sat down and counted my money <laughs> and sat in my truck, and I said to my little dog, Lacey, I said, we're going to run this thing, man. We're going to have us a rocking decade. And I set that show. Once I got it set exactly the way I wanted it, I got basically dialed it in. Right. And I didn't change it at all, and I improvised very little. I mostly did that show just as efficiently as I could because I knew I didn't want to waste a lot of energy. I didn't want to have to really go high stakes, high risk, uh, improvisational comedy. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Okay, well, I I wanted to make the money. I wanted to have the thing as efficient as possible. And that dialing in process is, is with this pandemic going on and interrupting the work of a performer means that we can't polish, we can't hone, we can't improve, we can't perfect, we can't get that gleam on that act that is possible when we're regularly on stage. And it's also timing in that, like you say, you were born in 51, so your, your yep. career, you pretty much had the bulk of your career, even though you were still working. Right. Uh, same for myself. I mean, certainly the 80s, 90s, early 2000s uh, were great times for performers and for jugglers. So we, we could kind of look back with some nostalgia and say, well, at least we did it. And it doesn't affect us as much, even though both you and I were still doing some shows that right. had been canceled. Do you feel that if your career ended now, that you'd feel satisfied with the way your juggling career turned out? I've always been a writer, right? And mm-hmm. so I wrote my first novel in 1980. And it was incomplete and it remained flawed and in need of repair. In um, 2007, I got uh, worked with a developmental editor and we finished and fixed it. And then I went on to write three more novels. So I've just finished my fourth novel and I'm recording it as an audio book as we speak. What I guess I mean to say is that, of course, performers run their shows as a craft and a business. But inside of a performer, not all, but inside of some performers is somebody that's very creative, wants to uh, deal with the opportunity that creativity presents. And so I felt after doing 30-minute shows, 45-minute shows, some 60-minute shows, working uh, across a wide range of the industry, I felt the box had been explored as much as it possibly could. The 15-minute sidewalk show, the 30-minute cannery show, the 45-minute nightclub act, the 60-minute holiday resort show. So I turned my attention to writing long fiction, which has been my focus these years. And at 69 in September, my body is is, uh, much less consistent than it used to be. And I never really was a, a scintillating juggler. I was uh, <laughs> I could get some stuff done, but uh, my juggling skills, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, I think I'm a very gifted physically, but I must say uh, juggling has been uh, a difficult taskmaster. Well, it's like the last guest, Scotty Meltzer. I mean, he's almost proud of the fact that he's not a very good juggler. So to have a successful juggling career and really not be that strong of a juggler uh, technically is not a sign necessarily of, of pride. But it certainly can be done. I mean, the, the, the skills needed to be a successful comedy juggler are so much more than just, oh, I can juggle seven balls or seven rings or five clubs. So certainly the personality, the, the physical presence, would you say is more important than technical skill or as important? 
certainly in your career, you, you downplayed the skill. Yes, but the main language going on in an outdoor 30-minute street show at a Pier 39 or, or Ghirardelli Square or Faneuil Hall, part of it is the voice, but a very large part of it is the visual kinetic language that you present to your audience. It doesn't have to be juggling. It just has to keep moving. It has to be kinetic. It has to have a ability to capture the eye and drive the moment to the next moment. And that's what so Lynn's, you know, juggling is so uh, useful is because it's got a sequential process. It keeps going and going. Magic sort of has just this pointed blow off. Cups and Balls is, is flowing like juggling. So it's got a, a, that sequential attractiveness to it. But I always felt that was the main, you know, I'm not trying. I, I think juggling arts are beautiful and and some of the people that take it to the, the most exquisite, highest level possible often will come out on the street and overwhelm an audience, and the audience doesn't even know how to respond to some of the things they see. Well, very rarely does an audience see a successful street performing show and go, boy, I wish they did more juggling. <laughs> that show is lacking in juggling. I mean, <laughs> they want to see what they see. I mean, they're not really expecting anything when you show up, whether you're an escape artist or a unicyclist or whatever it is. Certainly juggling is one of the tools, but I don't think people are disappointed like, oh, I wish there had been more juggling. Mike Davis and A. Whitney Brown, Butterfly Man, Ray Jason. Good examples. Yeah. Those four guys. Uh, Ray was a straight man and he had an, enough skill to sell a joke here and there in his act. Yeah. But he was mostly selling the presentation of one trick to the next, to the next, to the hat. Yeah. And where... Whitney was very laconic, very loose, kind of meandering, but his skill at concocting a really sharp, funny line, it was energy. He had a lot, contained a lot of energy in that. So you could see those four acts all driving their juggling act forward by the formidable construction of what their imagination and their timing and their skill to, to take the moment and really focus people's minds on what they were doing on stage. Yeah, but not, like you say, high technical jugglers. Perhaps the ones you could look at who then this next generation who came up afterwards, like Frankie Olivier is a very strong juggler. Uh, yeah. Edward, Edward Jackman, who's a yes. juggler that a lot of people have forgotten since he has really no public exposure anymore. He dropped out of sight from the juggling right. world. Like he was a, the first, in my mind, really combination of really good skill with the comedy chops. Like Michael oh, yeah. Davis was probably the best of all the comedy jugglers, but you couldn't say you couldn't see him doing like five clubs or something like that. Mm -hmm. Where Edward was a seven ball, five clubs, really an amazing juggler combined with the comedy. But like the ones you mentioned, A. Whitney Brown, Michael Davis, these jugglers really weren't their acts weren't built on juggling skill, and that yours as right. well. It was built more on like you say all these intangibles of the physical presence. Another thing juggling has that it offers like a faux danger, which is great on the street, you know, juggling on a unicycle. Yeah. And there was, there was that. It, but one day I was working at the Anchorage and um, a very talented Mark Neiser is walking through the wharf and he's got a, his stuff with him. So I think, you know, we were all doing pretty good shows that day. There were shows done before Mark jumped up and did a show and there were shows after Mark had jumped up and, and done a show. But Mark Neiser 
that one day with a very talented guy, we were like throwing little sticks of dynamite. Mark had a nuclear juggling detonation when he performed in the Anchorage. He got the largest crowd, enormous response. The audience came forward, very generous with him. He left a big impression. And he, of course, was a very sweet, humble guy. And, and it, was, it was great to have him come out and, and show us what he could do. It was fantastic. Well, he's probably one of these new prototypes of guys who not only were great jugglers, but had a, a star look and had all the tools that have been coming up, sort of seeing these other uh, sort of beginning acts who were great in their own way, but didn't really have the exposure to the juggling skills, you know, through the internet, that like the right. Marknizers and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, he's another guy who was a great juggler and comedian and performer. And when all those tools come together, juggling could be a pretty powerful force, especially on the streets, especially out in the open. Now, you had a pretty pretty impressive finale for a while. I remember you did like a rollabola with two trash cans on top of it. Is that right? So that was like one of those big danger tricks. How'd that uh, trick evolve? First of all, one of the problems I thought in Fisherman's Wharf is that we were disabled by having those stages rather than being able to do circle shows. Almost anywhere else in the world you go, you'd be down on the ground and have people circle around you. Like a 360, yeah. Yeah, and so instead we had these proscenium-style stage acts on pretty much posted stamps, very small. So we were already up in the air, but we were on these small stages. And so one of the problems is I had a pretty sprawling dog act and I needed bigger spaces. And so those spaces were never the best places for me to perform that act. Even though I was out in San Francisco, once it became a problem, nevertheless, I was doing the same thing everybody else was doing. I was looking for some way to get up in the air a little higher so that I could be seen by a, a little more easily and people could see me from further away. And the idea was that I'd make more money. I'm not sure that that ever came true. I did it several different ways. One, I did it with two boards with garbage cans between the two boards and the Rolo Bolo under. And then later, I just put the garbage cans down, put a board mm. on top of the two garbage cans, and then did the Rolo Bolo just up elevated a little bit. I actually tried four garbage cans for a while where I'd stack them up and I would climb way up. I'd Whoa. be like, I was, uh, I don't know, I think my feet were about seven or eight feet in the air and my head <laughs> would be about whatever that 14 feet in the air. And that was an amazing thing. We did it in uh, rehearsals. I never took it out on the street, but I could do it. And if it fell apart, man, that was a big explosion, man. Cans went flying everywhere. It was amazing. You were talking full-size trash cans that you're-, you're... Full-size, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and would you travel with those or just hope they were there? Or... <laughs> I bought uh, garbage cans everywhere I went and I, I got you. them leave them right, right. when I left or if I was a terrestrial, cause I was always a grassroots act. I wasn't really staying in hotels and I was more of a guy driving in a pickup truck, sleeping in the back of my truck with my dog, watering the chicken and going, <laughs> going into the coffee shop and talking to the truck drivers. It was interesting these different paths we all took through the juggling world. That's why I like to interview different types of performers because you know, there's the Albert Lucas's or the Chris Cremos, but there's a lot of people who've been working for 40 years uh, like yourself, uh -huh. cranking out shows, bringing juggling to the masses, bringing entertainment, carving out very interesting and, and satisfying lives. 
Oh, yeah. And it, I touched a, a lot of different things. My pit band in Laughlin, Nevada, they were there playing the matinee because I was doing a daytime show off the casino lounge. And my pit band was the band that was playing for Sinatra at night in, in Las <laughs> Vegas. And they were all cracking up. They were like, Dana, man, I'm telling you, man, I'm going to tell Frank about you, man. You, you know, he. <laughs> I don't think you may fit in, but man, he's, he's going to crack up when he finds out what we're doing for the living during the day. <laughs> Funny. So uh, what about some stories from the road as far as all these different trips? Any particular places, either they were really good or really bad, stand out in your long career as, oh man, that one was a memorable one as far as gigs go. Oh yeah. Well, I'm in Texas. I better I better not say the name of the town, but I'm in West Texas. <laughs> there's, there's still a lawsuit, a little still a, a, a warrant out for your arrest there, so... I'm doing this show, and this uh, woman at, at the fairgrounds, I'm at this fair, and she's like to buy me a drink after work in the evening, and she writes down this uh, lounge, a, a bar, and mm -hmm. location, and, and meet me there. So I get there. She's got it all figured out. She buys me a drink, and we sit, sit across from each other at this little table. And she just pushes this uh, hotel room key across the table to me. And she said, um, she'd like me to join her okay in her room and that she's just one thing that i needed to know before i accepted that her husband was the chief of police <laughs> okay. <laughs> so if anything happened it's not likely that i would survive uh, the arrest right <laughs> so uh, I was like, well, that was, sounds kind of exciting. Maybe it's just a drink tonight, okay? Maybe just. <laughs> and also you've lived on a, a sailboat for many, many years. Yeah, yeah. I, what drove you to that as far as uh, were you always interested in living on the sea? When I got off the road in 1980, I'd been six years on the road living in the back of a truck working yeah. in Key West and Boston, Seattle, San Diego, doing college dates. But I was a mess. I was just uh, unstable and I couldn't talk about anything other than what my last show was like or what my next show was going to be like or what I might do to improve the show. And I was like, I could feel that, that I was really in a, in a mess. And I, I ha just happened to run into a flyer about uh, taking sailing lessons. And I started sailing in 1980 and fell in love with it. And I found it helped me get out of showbiz think and obsessing about the act and making a little more space for a, a, a broader, uh, more fully realized person. So I pursued that and I sailed with a bunch of uh, Andrew uh, Potter and, and Wheeler Cole. Uh, we owned a boat together. I sailed with Ray Jason back in the day. And then I've started, continued pursuing sailing ever since. And two years ago, I spent the summer sailing from San Francisco to Avalon, Catalina Island and back. I was uh, offshore for 60 days. Uh, wow. I prepared my own boat, got everything all set. We own a 36-foot sloop. It's a French boat. It's called a Genoa. And um, about eight years ago, we sold a house and uh, we moved on to the boat. But I was starting to work in uh, Mexico and uh, my wife was... Uh, sort of starting to work on projects sort of abroad. So we didn't feel like we needed to keep a house. And so we started uh, living aboard our boat in Emeryville. We didn't think it was going to last six months and it ended up lasting eight years. Well, it sounds like you're used to kind of living in small spaces too, living in a truck, <laughs> living in a boat. <laughs> I so, have to have a bed that moves, Dan, okay? The bed's got to move. Okay? Exactly. You have that wanderlust. You can't stay <laughs> Well, it's, I'm Jesuit educated, and, and there's just two 
pieces of the puzzle. There was a, a slogan atop the archway as I entered ballet studio, and it said, the height of the art is to conceal the art. Ballet dancers don't go out and try to make things look difficult. That's not the purpose of it. It's to take very difficult things and make it look effortless. I've applied that to my work as a performer. I never tried to sell stuff as like, oh, this is so difficult. I just figured out another way to play it. And the other is, this is kind of a Jesuit value, which is the 99% perspiration 1% inspiration. Take your idea that you want to present and don't be so enchanted with how good the idea is. Work the idea and really bring it forward with effort. Don't just uh, rely on your scintillating, brilliant discoveries. Yeah, there's no, there's no substitute for hard work. Even in juggling, even though a lot of us didn't get into the juggling to be, be hard workers or because we had such strong work ethics, but if you love juggling and you want to put an act together, it is work but hopefully it's work that you enjoy and, and you can work hard at it without feeling like you're working hard. That gets to this diagnosis, I think, of in August every year, in the middle of the busiest time of the year where you're the largest crowds and the most adulation and the most positive response. And people will walk up and say, gee, man, I think uh, this looks great, man. I, I, how did you get into that? I think I want to try that. You know, like, well, you tell the story, but they're not there in February when it's Tuesday in February <laughs> and it's maybe going to rain or maybe not. Instead of 300 people, you got maybe three people. I think the diagnosis is that those of us that really have to be out there doing this work, it's not that we want to, it's we have to. It's the only thing we can do. Almost anything else will drive us so crazy. We literally could threaten our lives or our happiness or emotional stability. We're compelled to do this work. Well, they always say if you find something you love to do, then you never really have to work a day in your life. But like you say, if you look at something like a 17-day street festival, like in Halifax, oh sure, the weekends sound good, but boy, that, that Tuesday, you get that Tuesday show at, what, 10 o'clock in the morning or something or whatever it is uh, during a weekday. Even some of these festivals are very good, whether you go to New Zealand or you go to Canada, but there's still some rough, rough goes. Well, and we, we, we forget about those, right? It's sort of like uh, a woman giving uh, birth to her child. It, it's all pain until the child arrives. And then after the child's in their arms, it's like, what pain are you talking about? Well, it's looking back is always nice. It's always fun to look back and especially at the shows that are hard or, or had some adversity that you faced and overcame. But sometimes right during the middle, like I remember a show in uh, South Korea during a, a tsunami <laughs> when everything was going wrong. <laughs> that's what I like to, like what I, what I call embrace the suck. Like things are going so bad, you can kind of revel in the enjoyment of the unpredictability of the world and your place in it. And uh, I don't know. Sometimes I like it when it gets gritty and, and tough. And it sounds like you had some gritty and tough experiences coming up. I guess it was 1999 or maybe 2000. I got an opportunity to be the MC for a showcase in, at the Oregon Fair Association. I just happened to be in Dana zone. This like Lacey, my dog was in training, but she wasn't in my show yet. I was just on fire and it wasn't just on fire that night. I'd been burning it down for a couple <laughs> of months. I just had it. Sure. Yeah, you had a streak. Yeah, you had a zone. Just, I, it's just a zone. And there's a bunch of, of talent agents that thought they knew me. And I was like, eh, you know, Dana, he's, you know, you know, he does that with well, anyway, I tore it <laughs> up. I blew the doors off the place and I got a gig being MC at the largest free stage at the Oregon State Fair. 
which um, kept that job for four years. The job was to do a couple of shows, uh, introduce everybody, and also manage everybody, the green room. And, and they needed a, some showbiz person who knew how show worked and what show business was about to sort of handle that. They tried staff people, and it had always been not worked for them. So I did that, and then that led to working at the Ohio State Fair and doing the same thing on the, their biggest free stage. And these are big stages, 500 to 1,200 people per show. A lot of responsibility, paid really well. I got a lot of gigs because I was seen as somebody who could really deliver something that whatever they wanted, they wanted that, and they get that Dana guy. <laughs> so I had a really nice uh, run, and, and that came in the years that my dog Lacey was around, 2000s to 2010. You look at the success of... Uh, a. Whitney Brown, a senior staff writer with Saturday Night Live. Mike Davis, probably our high, one of the most ex- successful juggling acts ever to come out of Fisherman's Wharf. Harry Anderson came out of, uh, briefly out of San Francisco. Uh, Robin Williams came out of San Francisco. Bill Irwin came out of San Francisco. A lot of really major league talent was around me in those years. Of course, I think all of us aspired to that level of success. But not all of us have the discipline, the right mix of material for the right moment, or we don't have that missing little piece of quirkiness that comes with the great ones. I don't know what it is, but the thing that makes those talents great, it's hard to know. Well, a lot of it was timing as well. There certainly were opportunities that the jugglers of those days you know, through the comedy boom, the new vaudeville boom, yeah, uh, the corporate market, all those things, there was a lot more success to be had, especially on TV appearances, and that kind of thing. So it was a lot of different things coming together at the same time. But when you look at a career like yours, you have this longevity, this sort of journey. Right. I'm sure if you look back over the, the breadth of your life and career, it's amazing. I and mean, now, like I say, now you're an author. You've written not just this one book, but you have, a, what, four books? Yeah. That you've complete, and they're, they're all available at Amazon? No, my most recent I'm shopping right now, see if I can actually get it purchased by a, a publisher. It's interesting. I was doing uh, this festival in Tempe, Arizona, which is a suburb of uh, Phoenix. Uh, Robert Shields has uh, been crafting his artwork and selling at these fairs for a number of years. And Robert and I know each other over many, many years. He left uh, with great opportunity to do uh, his uh, television show with Yarnell. And he knew at the time when that was he was taken off the street in San Francisco that he would that was a one-way ticket. There was no way back. It would never be possible for him to return to what he considered to be some of the most uh, fun and exciting shows of his career, which happened in San Francisco. You know, he came up and he'll talk to me and and uh, between sets a little bit and be a little sentimental, not too sentimental, a little <laughs> sentimental about having the uh, the fun of having a, a circle show experience. He came, he did his thing and he left. Mike uh, came and did his thing and, and left and went on to some remarkable success. I really enjoyed being a small time entertainer and I have enjoyed being a small time entertainer. It's been the, the, the thing I focused on the most was just doing a good, honest 30 minute street show that was really my own material, my idea of what street ought to be and give it everything I got. Early in my career, it was all about laughs. Later in my life, I think I drove the show more by heart than I did by laughter. But regardless, it was the what I could get an audience to feel. I w- wanted them to experience the sincerity of my purpose. And Edmonton gave me uh, the uh, Golden Finkel in 2001 for my work as a street performer. And uh, it's to me, that was the biggest honor 
of my career. All the people I share that honor with are people I really respect for the dedication and talent and gift that they brought to the street. And for people who don't know, Dick Finkel was a very successful producer of street events. Yeah. And the driving force between some of the biggest uh, Canadian. And also there was one in Denver that I think he was involved with. Yeah, Al Kreiser produced that. I worked with one other producer at the Eugene Celebration, and he's currently at the Flugrass Festival in Sisters, Oregon. A guy named Steve Remington. Super monster, talented dudes that really know how to produce. They know how to stage. They know how to grab an audience for you. They know how to advertise you. They know their community really well. They have a passion for the arts. They, they don't just look at you and sort of commoditize you. They really dig into your thing and they, they completely get you and, they, and that helps them figure out how to present you. I died and went to heaven when I started working with Dick Finkel and, and Steve Remington. And I think that their talent is a rarer talent than ours. You know, a lot of people think, well, I could do that. That looks be, you know, we'll get a stage. It's like, no. And all the different personalities of the street performers. I and mean, we have some characters in our in our community. So if you get all, the, all of them together, like herding cats, like they say, or something like that. So, well, and having the gift and patience to, to do that. Yeah, like Shelly up in Edmonton. She's been out there so long. Yeah, but not everybody's got that gift. For Butterfly Man uh, stories. Mm-hmm. Late in my career, I was working with a producer in Glendale, Arizona. They had this thing called uh, the Glitter and Glow Festival. It, it's a holiday-themed uh, lighting festival, and it's, it's just one night. They have an amphitheater right there in uh, at City Hall. Uh, you can sit about, mm, I want to be honest here, probably 1,200, maybe 1,500 people maximum, but a really nice amphitheater. And the mayor had seen me doing little street shows and asked the event coordinator who worked for the mayor, said, why don't we get Dana uh, to work in the amphitheater? He seems to draw the biggest crowd and get the biggest reaction. So the producer asked me, he said, well, that seems like a pretty big space for just you. What, how could we do this, Dana? And I said, well, let me ask around, see if I can build a, a, a cast. So I got in touch with Robert Nelson, Butterfly Man, and I reached out to Waldo and um, we worked out the money and we worked out the technical side of things because we the big space we got up, we, we asked for lighting and really good sound. Mm-hmm. They gave it to us. And for two years, we went there. We would do a six, a seven and an eight. And we do 45 minutes. <laughs> Sounds fun. This is like 2005 and six. And so I got to unleash Butterfly Man on this crowd, <laughs> which. <laughs> yeah. It was, and Waldo was coming in from New York where he was living at the time. He's over on the islands now. And the three of us had a wonderful time. And basically Waldo and I just set up Robert to come in and close the show. When he, he would just burn down the house with his character as the butterfly man. And then we did a passing routine. The three of us passed and then that was the actor. You know? And I think those are some of the last really big shows Robert ever did. And by the time Robert got on, we'd always have the amphitheater filled, right? And they really hadn't really had anybody bang him around, you know, like Robert can bang a crowd. <laughs> so it was a, a really a highlight to uh, to my uh, working with Robert over the years because I I crank sets with him at Pier 39 on Fridays and Saturday nights for in the early 80s, middle 80s. It was really fun. I, the only deal was that Robert wouldn't fly to that gig. I had to go to Venice and pick him up and drive him to Glendale, Arizona, and then take him home. <laughs> why, why wouldn't he fly? Was he, I don't remember him being. 
Uh, oh, he just... would. I guess he would have. But he he wanted, <laughs> he wanted to. It's like, gee, Dana, I thought you were like all washed up, man. You got a trailer, man. You're doing dates and people are giving you gigs, man. Jeez, I thought you were like like this guy with a chicken, man. And that was about all you had going for you, man. And all now, look at you, man. I, wow. <laughs> he could bust balls. He was he was a, but always with love in his heart. Not for everybody. But for the, for those of us who, lucky enough to be his friend, I think there was a lot of love to go with the uh, the the caustic nature the man could possess. So yeah, I I think Robert and Waldo and I really liked each other authentically. We just sure. authentically liked each other. We were really fond of each other, and we really uh, cared for each other. And and um, if you really want to be a, a effective performer on stage. You have to make sure that you're an effective person off stage. You have to, if you've got a problem inside of yourself, you're not going to hide that problem that you've got inside of you from an audience. If you're doing a longer performance, they're going to see that there's something broken in you that keeps sort of shimmering or, or gl you get glimpses of it. So the more you can be fully realized, and if you have a problem, deal with it, sort yourself out so that when you're performing and you're giving of yourself, what comes out of you, out of your performance just infuses the audience with your humanity. That's a weird thing to say. It's like, well, why don't we just do a joke there? And why don't I just write that and I'll make that be the, the thing, right? Well, we all have a different approach. I remember when you were getting ready for your shows in Mexico not too yeah. long ago, you became more of a, a philosopher. Like there was more of a depth to the story you wanted to tell. And so you went from being a guy who was very scripted and very tight in, here's my routines, boom, boom, boom. It's a money-making machine. Right. To a guy through your books and through your shows looking to express himself more. That's what I saw. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I had uh, basically a 60 minute marching orders. And I once I kind of got there and saw what I was really up against, I always try to do about a 20 minute warm up before I started doing any uh, juggling. Right. Yeah. And so that gave me an opportunity to uh, talk about where I've come from, where I'm going. <laughs> my life this is my, one of my, say, I, I say, one of my jokes was uh yeah uh, the flight down was uh, to cancun it was a little bumpy but that water landing was very smooth and by the time <laughs> i swam the shore and had a shot of tequila with the showgirls i mean i'm telling you i finally have arrived <laughs> well quite a story quite a life dana and thanks for sharing it uh with the listeners of the drop everything podcast yeah uh, we'll see where this uh life goes from here i i wish you a lot of success with your books coming up and I hope people will go out and buy uh, at least Hot Spring Honeymoon, I believe, is available. Yep. On yep. Amazon. You can get that. Hot Spring Honeymoon by Dana Smith is on Amazon. It's right there. It's, it's a good uh, sexual farce. It's uh, it. Listen, anytime you can have sex and laugh at the same time, you're, you're having fun, man. Yeah. The word sexual farce, I don't know, should always go together. But as far as your reading pleasure, it sounds enjoyable. So <laughs> and you do call yourself the novel juggler. So you, you're a juggler and also a novelist. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Although that, yeah, it's fine. That's what I've been doing. <laughs> That's who you are now. You're the novel juggler. Of course, you were the juggler with the chicken on his head, the juggler with the dog, the juggler <laughs> traveling the world, or traveling at least the United States. I was the loneliest man in show business. Actually, that was my my main title. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sure you had your... around and help heal my loneliness, people. <laughs> I'm sure you had fun. All right, Dana. <laughs> hey, thanks so much. Great catching up with you, and thanks for being on a podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, let's hear it for the wonderful, the enchanting Dana Smith. Thanks, Dana. You bet. Talk to you soon, Dan. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 86, my conversation with juggler and novelist 
Dana Smith. Thank you, Dana, for taking time away from your adventures on your boat, traveling the country, to be a guest on the Drop Everything podcast. Visit the sponsor of the IJA, International Jugglers Association, at juggle.org. Now go out in the world, drop everything, except when you're juggling.